As many of you already know, we've been going through the book, the prophecy of Zechariah in the Old Testament. We're coming to the conclusion of that study, not today. Uh, Next week we'll do uh, an Easter sermon, a resurrection sermon, particularly. And uh, then we'll have a couple of more sermons on Zechariah, and we will... We'll conclude that series on Zechariah in a few weeks, and then we'll start up a new summer series on the kingdom of God. But before we look at our passage this morning in, in Zechariah 10, I want us to, to be reminded, because we didn't preach on it last week, but I want us to be reminded of, of where we've come from, the progression of the book. If you'll remember, in the first six chapters of Zechariah, we had these otherworldly, heavenly, apocalyptic visions. I won't uh, give you the specific visions uh, this morning, but I will give you the, the broad ideas behind those visions in the first six chapters of the book. Uh, the first vision had to do with the fact that God is at work behind the scenes bringing peace to the world. Although we can't see Him at work all the time, In fact, sometimes it doesn't look like he's there at all. The first vision reminded us that God is at work. It's like a craftsman who's putting the pieces back together again because there's something wrong in our world. And he's putting the pieces back together again because God has always been about wanting to dwell with his people. It was the third vision, glory in our midst, God coming to dwell with his people, because he wants to be near us, and because we're sinners, we're broken, because he wants to be near us, he comes and he's the one who makes us righteous, he changes us from the inside out, not only does he give us his righteousness, but he also sends his spirit, it's another vision of um, the, the trees, the, the lamps, that uh, his people are empowered by his spirit. And then ultimately, he's going to come and he's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with injustice. He's going to deal with evil. And our last vision, of course, was the vision that God will be and is victorious. He will bring ultimate and final victory. All those visions in the first six chapters of Zechariah, all pointing us to what God is doing in Christ Jesus. That's the first part of the book. The second part of the book, right in the middle, is chapters 7 and 8. So if we really believe that God is at work behind the scenes, then there are certain implications for us as his people. That's why in chapters 7 and 8, Zechariah says, let your hands be strong because your God is with you. In other words, in, in the middle section of Zechariah, it is, don't give up. Keep moving. Trust. Now we've reached the third part of of this prophecy, chapters 9 through 14. And in this third part, we're seeing a picture of what God is doing on earth, even as we look with our own eyes. And it's not what we're expecting. Chapter 9, a couple of weeks ago, Hal preached that your king will come. Yes, you will have a king, but he'll come lowly, humbly, riding on a donkey. 
The world won't be impressed by what you see. In fact, we won't be impressed if we look at life the way the world looks at life. You see, this last section that we're in now, chapters 9 through 14, and particularly chapter 10 this morning, provides us a picture of the life of faith, what it means to live by faith. And it's not what we expect. Zechariah is pointing us to what it means when we Christians say, look to Christ. The question that I have for you this morning is, is Jesus enough? Is Christ enough? Zechariah 10 reminds us that we can't do it on our own, that we need some help from the outside. The help has come, and it's more than enough. Zechariah 10 is printed for you in your bulletins. You can open it up in your Bible if you'd like, or you can look there in your bulletins. But we're going to read the whole chapter this morning. I'd ask you to look there as I read. Zechariah 10, beginning in verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone in the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense. The diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people, they wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. And they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight Because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back, because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. And then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. With their children they shall live and return, and I will bring them home from the land of Egypt. I will gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria will be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord. And they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we, we acknowledge when we read this chapter, there seems to be so many things going on, it's, it's hard for us to comprehend. And yet your promise is that through your Spirit, you will give us all that we need to understand what it is you've called us to do and be. 
Father, so this morning we simply ask that as we go through your word that you would remind us of your faithfulness. That you would ultimately so show us your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, let's, let's remember this now. Zechariah is speaking to uh, the remnant left of God's people. They're the ones that came back from Babylon after they've been exiled. They've come back to build the temple of the Lord. And they're small. They're weak. They're hurting. And if we're going to be very honest here, we have to acknowledge they're not very faithful. Evidently, since uh, the last time Zechariah has prophesied, some time has passed. And again, as before, their zeal has slipped. In fact, verse 2 tells us that they are, are wandering around like lost sheep. And they're wandering around for several reasons. They don't have a shepherd. The leaders that they have are not that good. And those who may be happening or may be looking to something, the things they're looking for are not the right things. It says here that they're looking at the household gods, the, they're looking to diviners who offer false dreams. And the text here says it's all empty consolation, false comfort. And see, the truth of the situation, once we get to Zechariah 10, is they're simply not happy with what they have. It's not what they expected. What they want, it doesn't really include what they ultimately need. You see, the people that Zechariah is speaking to, they think that on their own, they know enough to determine what's best for them. Realize they're they're not specifically denying God. These are the committed ones. These are the ones that left their homes in Babylon. They picked up and they left to come to a difficult situation to build the temple of the Lord. They're the committed ones. They've returned from exile. But realize in chapters 9 through 14, you know what's not mentioned anymore? The temple. I guess it's finished. The temple is the dwelling place of God. And at the end of the prophecy, it's almost like it's not enough. The problem the whole time was their hearts have been divided. They want the good things that God provides and not God himself. Those things in and of themselves, they won't deliver. It's a false comfort. You see, we can can love God. But we can love the good things that God provides more. And the result is not a harmless wandering around in the world. We're told here that they are suffering afflictions because they're going to something other than God or someone other than God. One of the things that I I want us to consider this morning is when when you seek after something more than God... It's not just a neutral activity. It's negative in nature. It brings affliction. It brings trouble. It brings heartache. And when I thought about them on their aimless journey at this point in the life of of the community of God, 
I immediately thought of all my friends, neighbors, some people even here in the church that, that seem to be just wandering around saying, I'll take God seriously later. I, I need to first figure out what kind of job I'm going to have. I need to first figure out who my spouse is going to be, or if even I'm going to have a spouse. It's not an indifferent path if you're seeking something other than the God who created you. It will lead to heartache. It will lead to pain, as the text says. It will lead to suffering and affliction. True religion wants God himself, not God plus. It's a looking to God alone with a great sense of weakness and need and acknowledgement, even as Matt said when, we're, when, we, were, when we were baptizing these babies, that, that we can't do this on our own because only God can give us what we truly need. That's why verse 1 begins with what? Ask rain from the Lord. Immediately in Zechariah chapter 10, Zechariah the prophet on behalf of God is reminding his people that they are dependent creatures, that they are needy, that they're not self-sufficient. We walk around on an aimless journey if we think we know what is best for us. I think the first thing that we need to address in this text is is we're just like the people in Zechariah's day. It was a long time ago, but I don't think the hearts of people have changed that much. We don't get it. Maybe we too, like the people here, maybe we're looking to the wrong things. Maybe we think we really know what we need. And I I had to ask myself this question, so I'll, I'll ask it to you as well. Do you really think in and of yourself that you know what will bring you joy, what will bring you happiness, what will bring you lasting comfort. Are you that smart? I I could come up with a myriad of of illustrations or or ideas here, but I I have a couple, and I think it'll it'll give give you the point. Those of us who have enough money to do, maybe not everything that you'd like to do, but a lot of things that you'd like to do, Isn't it possible that these gifts of God, money in this case, isn't it possible that it can be a distraction from God? Well, let's let's turn this on on its head. Maybe maybe you're struggling financially this morning. Do you think that once you have enough money that, that, that you won't struggle anymore? That everything will be good once you can pay all your bills? Let's look at the relationships. Those of you who are married, do, do you have, maybe you don't verbalize this, but deep down inside, do you have this expectation of your spouse, of your spouse such that if your spouse were to meet your expectations, then you and your marriage would be really good? I mean, if your wife or your husband did everything that you thought they needed to do, would that fix all your problems? Or those of you who are not married and you want to be married, do you think that once you're married, everything's going to be great? That you'll be complete? You see, the, the question that I think we need to address is when you are hurting, when you are disappointed, when you are feeling a little bit empty or a little bit lacking, 
where do you go for comfort? What is it that you think will make you feel better? It's not that money's bad. It's not. It's a gift from God. It's not that, that marriage and, and relationships, it's not that they're bad. In fact, it's a gift from God as well. But if you want them more than God, they will leave you empty. They will leave you hollow. They will leave you not fulfilled. See, the people in Zechariah's day, they're, they're looking for their little household gods, right? And we don't make those little household gods anymore, but those household gods are out there, aren't they? They're false comforts. And false comforts lead to affliction. Richard Phillips says there are a few things more damaging than false comfort. If you're a Christian here this morning, is Jesus Christ enough? It's an important question because what's found in verse 3. God really does care about you and me. In fact, he cares so much that when God's people are not taken care of, he's mad, he's angry. Verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders, for the Lord cares for his flock, the house of Judah. If the leaders are looking in the wrong places, the people are sure to follow. The point here is, everybody's looking in the wrong places. Everybody's looking to household gods. Everybody's looking to, to this, uh, these ideas that they think will bring them comfort. And realize, even in this room here this morning, there are a lot of leaders. We got other pastors, we got ruling elders, we got deacons, we got women leaders. This passage seems to indicate that people who lead, lead first and foremost in their acknowledgement that they can't do it. Leaders acknowledge that they have to ask for rain from God. We have to look to the one true shepherd to meet those needs and look to him alone. And and the reason why leaders have to do that is because everybody's supposed to be doing that. And everybody's supposed to be doing that because God cares. God cares because his intention has always been to bless his people. If you go back all the way back to the visions, the center vision, vision is God wants to dwell with his people. There's no other God like that. There's no other God that loves his people so much that he's willing to do anything so that he can be with them. God ultimately says that he is going to bless his people so that they'll be like a a majestic battle horse. A majestic steed. I don't don't know what your picture is of, of power and beauty and glory, but whatever it is, that's what the passage is talking about. God's going to bless his people and make them into this majestic battle horse by sending a cornerstone, which is the supporting point of a structure. If you don't have a cornerstone, the structure falls down. God's going to send the tent peg, the security for a dwelling place, and the battle bow, a warrior who fights for his people. And when he sends this great shepherd who is described as a cornerstone, a tent peg, and a battle bow, everything changes. Verse 5 tells us, even God's people will change. We will become mighty in battle. Instead of wandering around aimlessly on this journey, we're now able to engage life with might. Not because we're great warriors in and of ourselves, but because the Lord is with them. 
You see, the first five verses of this passage, you have to understand the big picture. The people are wandering around aimlessly. They're not on mission. They don't even know what they want. The things that they want, they really don't need. And it's all because they think they can do it on their own. They think they know what they need instead of looking to the one who knows. They come up with their own plans and ideas when their God throughout all of history has been the one telling them that you need me. And evidently me isn't good enough. The problem is the me is God and God is all that we need. What they had was good, the temple, but it wasn't good enough. The rest of the passage speaks to the something more that God will have to do because his people can't do it. Do you, do you go at life each and every day with an acknowledgement that whatever it is that you need to get through the day, you really don't have it unless God provides it? I don't. The rest of the passage from 6 through 12 is all about it's all about what God has to do, what God wants to do, and what God will do. He, he tells us what he does, he tells us how he does it, and he tells us the, the one who's going to bring it about. Look at verse 6 and 7. It's what he does. I, he's God, I will strengthen them, I will save them, I will bring them back, I will answer them, and their hearts shall be glad. All terms of deliverance. All terms of restoration, and it's all God. The two tribes, it's, it's standing as the whole of God's people. You know what salvation has to do with? Salvation has to do with being delivered from our aimless journeys that we set about on our own, thinking that we know what we need, and we don't even have a clue. So God says, I will save them, I will strengthen them, I will answer them. The life of faith is looking at life from a different vantage point. It's an ability given by God enabling us to see from a different perspective, to acknowledge our need, look beyond ourselves, and see God at work in Christ bringing salvation. And here's, here's the thing that you need to grab hold of. The journey doesn't necessarily change. But the aim and the goal of our journey does. Our circumstances and situations don't necessarily change, but we are now able to see them in a different light with a different ending. I don't know if the Reddings are here, but they trust God. Their trust in God didn't change the outcome of the death of their child. But their trusting God changed the way they looked at it, the way they understood it, and the way they continue on. Do you see the life of faith there? The life of faith looks beyond the present, not to escape reality, but rather so that we can interpret reality with a new meaning. And it's all because God has compassion on us. He loves us. I mean, he cares for us in the first part. He has compassion on us in the middle part. And it's not because we're any good. It's not because we're worthy. It's all because God loves us. And because God loves us, he says, I am for you and I will do it. And even if it doesn't look like I am for you and I will do this, you have to trust me. That's the life of faith. That's the what. Here's the how. 
verses 8 through 10, and it's not what you expect again. God scatters them in verse 8 so that he can bring them back. You realize we we have all these ideas, oh, God's people kind of messed up God's plan, so he had to kick them out of the land, as if God didn't plan that from the very beginning. The exile was always part of God's plan. In other words, until something dies, it cannot truly live. Until we, can't, until we know that we can't do it on our own, that all our efforts at self-salvation are for naught, that's when God comes and brings life out of death. Do you realize that self-sufficiency will never bring about your transformation? Self-sufficiency will never change your heart. It only brings slavery. John 12, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So you guys are going to go all to work tomorrow. And in the kingdom of the world, from the world's point of view, life is a zero-sum game. You know what? You know what I'm talking about? If you're... If you're counterpart in your office gets the promotion, that means you don't get the promotion. There's only a a particular amount of money that your company can afford to give raises. If your counterpart gets a big chunk, that means you get less. It's a zero-sum game. You realize in the kingdom of God, no one ever loses in Christ Jesus That means your gain is my gain, my gain is your gain, your loss is my loss, and my loss is yours. You see, the life of faith is upside down. To live, you must die. To win, you must lose. It's in our poverty that we experience what it means to be rich. And as Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it's like this... Until you get to the end of your rope, you think that you can do it. And if you could do it, God would never have sent his son. Matt Matt Seipel shared with me a sermon from one of my favorite theologians and pastors who writes a lot on the person of Jesus Christ. I'm paraphrasing something that I listened to, that we listened to in one of his sermons, and this is what Mark Jones says. I'm paraphrasing. He says, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. It appears he gives you a lot more than you can handle. After all, he did it to his own son, and if you didn't have more than you could handle, then you wouldn't need God. Doing God's will leads to heartache, but it also leads to heaven, and we have to live by faith. We have to trust that our Father's ways are better than the ways of the world and the ways of the appearance of the world. And Zechariah is speaking to God's people in the midst of a, of a, a really disappointing time, and he's saying, you just have to trust me. I am sending someone to come to deliver you. And that's what verse 11 and 12 talks about. Verses 11 and 12, he, he shall pass through the sea of troubles. You know who the he is, right? He, he shall strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria will be laid low. The scepter of Egypt shall depart and I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name. 
The sea of troubles is literally the sea of affliction and God himself and the person of Jesus Christ is the one that goes through that sea of affliction on the cross. The drying up of the Nile, the Nile is a reference to all the false gods. So all that has troubled God's people will come to an end and the Lord himself will take on the troubles. But he emerges from it and he wins. And because life is not a zero-sum game in the kingdom of God, when he wins, we win makes his people strong by faith. They walk in his name by faith and the people continue in the world living in light of what God has promised to do and what God promises to finish off and we persevere and we endure with joy and hope and strength so that even when the world looks at us they can't even understand how we are continuing in the world because we're empowered by something greater than ourselves. That's why God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. Listen, I I know we experience times of difficulty and struggle, emotional struggles, physical struggles, pain experienced because of injustice in the world and evil and wickedness. But you realize what Zechariah speaks to in this passage has already begun in Christ Jesus. What Zechariah speaks to in this passage has already begun. And what God has begun in Christ, he will complete. And as we live in the midst of what God has done, as we live in the midst of what God promises to finish, we can face this life, brothers and sisters, and we can face this life not as conquered victims, but as victorious sons or daughters of the living God. If you're a Christian here this morning, even if bad things have happened to you, you are not a victim. We are sons and daughters of the living God. So the answer to the question is yes. It's not simply yes, it's Jesus Christ is more than enough. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who saves. He is the one who brings joy out of hardship. And we don't dismiss our troubles as if they don't exist. We look at them. We face them. We even look through them and see Jesus Christ, our King, to the, to the one who was born as a man and yet did not give up any of his divinity. The one who identifies with his people, who is tempted just like you and me, yet without sin. And the one who comes and dies in our place so that we can be raised to life with him by faith. You know, and I'm going to end like this, but it's it's really important for me to share this with you. uh, A lot of people, I know you guys only think I work on Sunday. But there are a lot of people on Monday through Saturday that want advice. In fact, many of you have come to church and you're hoping to get some some tidbit of truth that will help you go do whatever it is that you are dealing with in in the coming week, whether or not you're looking for a job, whether or not you're lonely, whether or not um, you're struggling with something and you're looking for a tidbit of of advice. And, And realize... Even when I give advice, it's probably not, not that good very often. But every once in a while, I'll give a good piece of advice, and somebody will say, ah, oh, you're probably right. 
I've learned that just because they say, oh, you're probably right, doesn't mean that you're going to listen to it. Some people do. Most people don't. Do you know the greatest piece of advice that anybody can give you at any time and the only thing that I can give you this morning that will help you with whatever particular issue that you're dealing with, the only thing that helps you is Jesus Christ. It's the most practical thing in the world because Jesus Christ enables you to do whatever it is that you're called to do. If you, and I'm not talking about looking at his example. It's a great example. I'm talking to you about what Jesus did that you couldn't do. Looking to Christ doesn't mean that we don't live in the world. Looking to Christ doesn't mean that we're not oblivious to the pain and the suffering and injustice. Looking to Christ means to acknowledge that whatever it is that you are looking for, that in and of yourself, you don't have what it takes to do what you're called to do, and you have to look to Jesus Christ who's done what was necessary. And that doesn't mean he's going to change your situation and your circumstances. He might. But it will enable you to go whatever it is he's called you to go through and to go through even as you cry to still go through that with joy. Because Jesus Christ is not just enough, he's more than enough. Looking to Christ enables us to see clearly, to act faithfully, to love mercifully, and to powerfully live life as it was intended to be lived. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a promise that you will not let us go. And because you won't let us go, we can hold on. And even as Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, many of us are are wrestling now with what it is we have to do and, and what it is we should do. And would we simply be like Jacob and simply say, I will not let you go until you bless us. It's in Christ's name that we hold on to and as we pray this morning. Amen.